It's a new year, 2017, and many are saying good riddance to 2016 for lots of reasons. On the first day of a new year, we have an opportunity to review the events of the last year, to catalog our hopes and fears going forward, and perhaps to complete lists of resolutions for a new start. We think about time as we break out new calendars, for the pictures at least, or add dates to the calendar programs on our phones. And we quickly fill up the days, hours, and minutes of our lives with events, activities, and to-dos. The more we can cram into every moment, the better, right? We all do it. There are deadlines to meet, buses to catch, reports to be turned in, meetings to attend, carpools to organize. Calendars and clocks have become our masters in modern society. In his book, Time Wars, Jeremy Rifkin writes that the idea of our lives and the events in them being controlled by blocks of allocated time is in terms of centuries at least, a relatively new concept. The idea actually comes from the Benedictine monks, whose passion for organizing and filling every minute of the day grew out of St. Benedict's conviction that idleness is the enemy of the soul. In the 15th century, clocks began to rival churches in the town squares in Europe. And in the 17th century, these clocks added minute hands. We've gained many things in terms of production and organization in subsequent centuries, but other things have also been lost when our urban technology-filled lives have become divided and subdivided into seconds, minutes, and hours. For one thing, our distance from the natural rhythms of life continues to increase. Hardly anything is really seasonal anymore. We can get tomatoes, one of summer's most delicious offerings, flown to us from thousands of miles away any time of the year now though most of the ones we get right now can taste more like cardboard, I think. And with it all, we live in an increasing distant distance from the ancient but timeless understanding that each day, each moment, is an unearned gift from a gracious God rather than a commodity to be traded or spent. There was an ancient teacher of wisdom who was called in Hebrew Kohelet. His name in Greek is translated Ecclesiastes. This wise person understood time quite differently from the way we tend to live it today. He wrote after the Babylonian exile, an experience that had taught the Hebrew people that human experience was never going to be just the way they'd planned it to be. 
Some people see Ecclesiastes as the ultimate cynic. And there probably is some truth to that observation. Thirty-eight times in the course of the book, the writer proclaims, all is vanity. Maybe not a positive spin, but a realistic one. Perhaps he's more a pragmatist than a cynic, a practical theologian who refuses to look at life through rose-colored glasses. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. This analogy reminds us that the ebbs and flows of life are like seasons, the ones we tend to overlook. A time to plant and reap, a time to rip and sow, a time to mourn and dance. Today's reading catalogs 28 seasons of life in sharp contrast to each other. Each one represents an undeniable part of our human existence. Things are the way they are, set in motion by God. The universe unfolds according to its own inner logic and set of seasons. Only God knows why things happen and why they're set in the way that they are. So we shouldn't spend time and energy overthinking or complaining. Instead, Kohelet advises, the best thing to do is to be happy and enjoy yourself for as long as you can. This theological advice acknowledges that there are so many things over which we have no control that it's wise to be happy and to look for joy in each and every moment. Though Kohelet acknowledges that there will be hatred and war in this world, he doesn't condone either one. He simply states the fact. He makes no judgment on the seasons. He doesn't say that hating is bad and loving is good, or that giving away is better than gathering. Some people run from mourning and force themselves to dance. While mourning is not meant to be a way of life, it is part of life. And it's important for us to journey through our season of mourning. In the same way, it's necessary and important for us to experience the emotion of hate towards injustice, hunger, and poverty in the world before we can love those who are disenfranchised, downtrodden, hungry, and poor. Decisively, Ecclesiastes teaches us that always and forever, we are to stand in awe before God, from whose mighty acts nothing can be added or taken away. God is the creator of time. And God sets the reality and the rhythm of that time. Even with this affirmation in mind, <clears throat> I've been haunted this Advent and Christmas season by a phrase from the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. This year, I sense we have many hopes 
and more than a few fears. At least I do. Many of us wrestle with feelings of hopelessness as we observe the ongoing national political gridlock and the foolishness of partisanship and naysaying in a time of national and planetary crisis. Will government policies increasingly reward wealth and punish vulnerability? Will the unmistakable biblical call to care for the least of these and the stranger in our midst be lost? I sincerely believe that the hateful rhetoric that permeates public conversation in our nation today is not God's word. And we can never sigh and say, well, that's just the way things are. If there ever were a time to kill, now is the time to kill incivility and to replace it with civility. Is the season to sow seeds of reason now as well? But how? I want to protest the complacency of Kohelet. The implication that there's nothing that they can or should do. Are my fears unfounded or overstated? Fear was obviously a reality that was very much understood by the people of Israel and Jesus' followers of the way. I didn't count the number of times in Hebrew that the word yira, the Hebrew word for fear, or the Greek word for fear, phobos, were used in the Bible. But I did find that the proclamation, fear not, is used 366 times in Scripture. One for every day of the year which lies ahead of us, plus one. In this season of Christmas, we remember that Christ came into a world covered up with injury and mourning. In the fullness of time, God's time, we celebrate that he came to show us the way to live differently and that he will direct us to God's peaceable kingdom, which he has come to restore. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. He announced when he began his ministry in Galilee, he came to defeat all that separated the people of Israel and the world from God and from each other. Christ's proclamation is for us today as well. Now is the moment of our salvation. This very moment in this year is rich with divine possibility. And we're on the edge of the old and new orders where Christ reigns. No, the past is not completely finished and gone. But the truly new has come. Dag Hammarskjöld once wrote, For all that has been, thanks. For all that shall be, yes. The great yes we proclaim is not assent to injustice, 
global ch climate change, racism, sexism, homophobia, or consumerism. It's a yes to God's life moving through all things and calling us forward to changed lives and changed communities. The new year embraces the call to choose life season by season, moment by moment, amidst our responsibilities to our communities and to the planet. Death and fear hold too much power in our lives. But the love of God in Jesus Christ our Savior casts out that fear and offers abundant life for all of us and for all of creation. God is with us in this time, in this season, and always. Thanks be to God. Amen.